Hello and welcome to Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb and this is the Joe Biden job review episode. Uh, so first of all, before we get started, I just wanted to say that I apologize for not having a show last week. Had a crazy couple of days uh, with midterms upon us, uh, so I just had to take a break, but I am back and we have a whole lot to cover uh, that happened in the past two weeks. Um, and so we're just going to get right into it. So first of all, what we're going to talk about today, uh, first of all, Joe Biden, we're now um, about a month and a half into the presidency. There's been a whole lot of controversy that has happened over the past couple of weeks um, about his role within the Democratic Party and about his own policies. Um, so we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about um, a whole lot with Joe Biden. Um, and we're also going to talk about the Senate. It's, you know, the same Senate conversation we've already had many times in the show, but we're going to continue about talking about it. Uh, we're also going to talk about Andrew Cuomo and the fact that he should resign. Um, and then we're going to talk about COVID because there is a lot to talk about with COVID news. Um, and hopefully it's all good news. Um, it's, well, it's, it's half good, half bad, but um, hopefully the good news outweighs the bad. So... With that being said, the first thing we're going to do uh, is talk about Joe Biden, talk about uh, the Senate, um, and really dig into that. So there's been a debate, uh, as I think I've talked about on the show before, as to what Joe Biden's role is and which part of the party he should be focusing on most um, when he's creating and implementing policies. Um, and also, kind of, there's been a debate about what his role is in government and whether he should be, you know, creating executive orders and kind of governing unilaterally or whether he should be kind of deferring to um, the powers that be within the legislative branch. So as I've said before, um, Joe Biden was only elected because he was able to create a really big coalition. Um, so he had extreme uh, members of the left wing, and then he also had moderate conservatives. Um, and so now that he's actually been elected and he's starting to govern, um, he needs to figure out whether he wants to appeal to that left wing or he wants to appeal to like the centrists, right? So the moderate liberals, the moderate conservatives, you know, the true independents. And there's a whole lot of issues um, that have come out or that have been discussed throughout the campaign and, and throughout now the first month and a half of Joe Biden's presidency that have kind of challenged him to start to think about what he wants his policy to look like. Um, and one of those issues uh, has been the $15 minimum wage. And the $50 minimum wage is something that they wanted to include in the big stimulus package, um, but ultimately the Senate parliamentarian uh, made the decision that because of Senate rules, that wasn't something that was able to be put into um, the stimulus package that they're trying to pass through Congress now. Um, and because of this, first of all, uh, there's definitely frustrations about the fact that this policy that's really going to help a lot of people is held up because of silly, removable, and annoying Senate rules. And then there's also been the argument of, all right, well, if the Senate won't do it, then Joe Biden needs to do an executive order and he needs to get it done. Um, and this is an important argument. Um, and it kind of goes down to like the base of what politics should be and what government should be. 
And ultimately, the point of government, as I've said repeatedly, is to help people. The whole point of having a government is to make sure that the country is functioning and it's assisting people to get the resources that they need to live their lives to the fullest, right? So the $15 minimum wage is certainly an aspect of that. You know, you can't live your life to the fullest if you aren't making a living wage. You aren't able to afford the necessities that you need from life. So the fact that the Senate won't do it, the fact that Congress won't get it done, does, in my opinion, lend to the fact that Joe Biden needs to take it under his own control um, and do something about it within his own power. However, there is the issue of, you know, when you start unilaterally governing, if you start, you know, making dis- making really big policy decisions that are going to impact, you know, the economy and impact domestic policy for a really long time, um, you run the risk of, you know, giving ammunition to your opposition party um, and having them say, look at all these executive orders that Joe Biden passed. He wasn't listening to the people. He wasn't listening to the people's representatives when he was creating all of this legislation. So it's a matter of, you know, actual representation in Congress um, and in the presidency versus, you know, knowing that the policy that you're implementing is actually going to help people. And the only reason that it's held up is because of kind of partisan political divisions. So I go both ways on this issue, but I do think that it's a lot more nuanced of an issue um, than people like to think. Um, And I am on Twitter all the time. I need to delete it. I know it's just a strain on my mental health, but at the same time, it's an interesting way to gauge how very political people feel about different issues. Um, And I'm friends with people who are pretty moderate, and I'm friends with people who are pretty liberal. Um, And so it's interesting to see what tweets they're interacting with and what they're putting out themselves. And what it looks like is that anyone who is kind of central or like slightly liberal on that side of the party is very much saying, we need to stop putting pressure on Joe Biden. We need to just let him govern the way he governs. He can't govern unilaterally. He, you know, he's not a monarch He's an executive. Um, And then on the far end of the spectrum, there's people saying he needs to be doing this work. He needs to be creating these executive orders. He, if he's not doing that, he's not doing his job and we voted for him for nothing. And then again, on the opposite side, all the way to the right, they hate anything that any Democrat is doing. So it doesn't even matter. But if Joe Biden were to sign this executive order um, creating the $15 minimum wage, it would just create a, a very tense political environment. And I've talked about this a lot, but there needs to be a separation between governing and campaigning. Um, and I truly, truly do believe that if you are going to be running for re-election, but you didn't have a backbone while you were in office and you just kind of let things slide through and you didn't do anything controversial um, just for the sake of winning re-election, you don't deserve to be running again. So if you're saying, oh, I'm not going to support the $15 minimum wage because like some people in my district won't support it and that means I might not win again, you're not doing your job. If you believe in your heart and in your soul that the $15 minimum wage is something that we need, um but you're not going to do it again because you're a coward, then that's a different issue. Um, But 
I do think that midterms are rapidly approaching, um, and so there needs to be some consideration for this really slim majority that we're holding in the Senate right now. And we've already seen numerous times how important that um, that majority is. Um, the COVID relief package, which we'll get into a little bit later, um, is currently sitting in the Senate, and without Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote, um, we would not be getting any kind of package, any kind of stimulus. And so I think that um, we do need to be paying attention to midterms and paying attention to optics. And I think that that's bad. I think it's a horrible way to govern. It's a horrible way to campaign. But this is the institution we live in. This is what our political bodies look like. And unfortunately, that's just kind of the way it is. And I hate saying that, and I feel kind of sick to my stomach saying it, um, because I do believe that we need these policies. But at the same time, I think that we need to um, really consider, you know, that long-term growth of the Democratic majority in Congress, um, and how Joe Biden governing unilaterally is going to help or hurt long-term. And frankly, as we know from history, um, the History does not look favorably upon parties that hold all three, um, the, you know, the House, the Senate, and the presidency during midterms. There is, you know, if we look back at 2012, there's just, there's a huge swing that tends to happen during midterms when one party holds all three. And we don't want that to happen. We're in an extremely politically economically, socially tumultuous time, and we do want to continue to hold this majority, we want to expand the majority, right? We have this really, really razor-thin majority in the Senate, and we have, you know, two or three senators who are extremely moderate on the Democratic side who may flip over and vote with the Republicans and caucus with the Republicans occasionally. So we have this extremely razor-thin margin in the Senate and a shrinking majority in the House, Right? We lost seats in the midterms, or in the general election, excuse me. And if we continue doing what we're doing, um, we're going to continue to lose seats. But I will say, on the flip side, if Democrats don't do anything in the next two years, um, if they continue to kind of avoid big issues, if they continue to not advocate appropriately for their constituents... They're going to lose seats as well, and they'll deserve to lose those seats. Um, so I think across the board, it's a matter of courage and a matter of um, conviction, um, as well as thinking thinking strategically about how policies and how governmental relations will look to the rest of the country. Um, and I know that that's a, an unpopular opinion, um, and it's it's an opinion that I've been thinking about and working through for a long time, and it's not even something I totally 100% believe all the time. Um, But I think that at this point, right now, we need to work within the confines of our institutions. Um, And then once we have a stronger footing, once we have a larger majority in both bodies, that's when we can really start pushing. Um, And we're actually having this conversation in one of my classes today of whether or not we should be working from inside or outside the institutions to, you know, encourage social political change. And in my opinion, and in the opinion of some of my classmates, we need to be doing both, right? We need to work from inside the institutions, we need to be strategic with our lobbying and our activism within the institutions, and then we also need to be outside holding people accountable, right? So Joe Biden 
just because he's the president now, just because he is a Democrat, doesn't mean that we should not be holding him accountable. Um, and that's something that I'm seeing from a lot like of the more central side of Twitter, um, is that people are not holding him accountable for anything at all. Um, and that's very dangerous as well. So hold him accountable from the outside, lobby, do the work, stay aware. Um, and then from the inside, we need to be working on electing more and more and more Democrats and strategically campaigning and strategically, you know, using policies that A, of course, number one, the, the first thing always, is actually going to help people and is actually responsive to their needs. And two, you know, are issues that we can campaign on, right? I'll say, I said it once, I'll say it a million times, we need, the Democrats need to be campaigning on universal broadband, that needs to be an intrinsic part of their platform, uh, especially for rural voters. And, you know, we're losing a lot of ground in um, in rural areas, and we need to obviously do something to fix that. So that's kind of just a rant about the $15 minimum wage. We need it. It needs to happen. Um, but it does need to happen strategically in order for it to be truly beneficial long term. Um, and the other like big economic issue um, that's kind of in a similar vein is the stimulus package. And again, the Senate is not working. Um, it's not doing its job as it's supposed to. Um, and yeah, that's that's a that's a big issue. So what's happening right now is the like literally as I'm recording, the Senate voted again 50-50 with Kamala Harris breaking the tie to officially start debate on the American Rescue Plan, which is just basically the stimulus package. Um, and so they they established rules. I think they have like 20 hours um, of debate that they determined. And then um, Senator Johnson from Wisconsin basically said uh, he motioned to have the entire 628 page bill be read aloud to the Senate as part of the debate, uh, which will take arguably around 10 hours. Um, so they're taking up half of the debate time by making these poor Senate clerks read out a 628 page bill. I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around like how hateful you have to be to, to do that. Not only just it's I, I'm not being particularly articulate about this issue because it's so frustrating to me, but it's the stimulus package is good politics and it's good policy, right? It, it it's help. It helps people. It actually helps people. And, you know, there's the Republican senator who's like, oh, it's giving this big kickback to the arts and this and that. Every single artist in the country has been unemployed for almost a full year almost a full year. And if you think after quarantine and after that like really, really dark couple of months in the beginning that artists and authors and museums aren't beneficial to American society, I just want you to go back to that time and think about what you're consuming. Oh, are you watching Tiger King? Like that was created by artists that are going to be supported by this package. Were you reading? Were you watching movies? Were you consuming any kind of art at all? You know, that's what this this package is supporting. And it's also just supporting regular people who, you know, need this funding to survive. Um, very frustrating. Um, and again, it's just an, an indicator of the fact that the Senate doesn't really work anymore. Um, it is a 
body that's supposed to be this great deliberative body that is able to, you know, really consider all of these pieces of legislation and create these amazing, amazing ideas. And what's happening now is a Republican senator is so mad about the fact that this bill is going to lose that he is taking up all of the debate time to, you know, do something procedural. And it's deeply frustrating and frankly mind-boggling. And uh, he is up for re-election in 2022. So if you see me in Wisconsin campaigning against him, mind your own business. (laughs) But, you know, that's where I'll be. Um, And the Senate... Look, okay, so I might talk about this in a, in a future episode. I might take more time to, like, lay out this whole viewpoint. But we need to get rid of the Senate. The Senate is not an important body anymore. Um, it, it does not do anything to, you know, help the people, frankly. And as we've seen from these two issues of the stimulus package, $15 minimum wage, at, you know, kind of one um, idea, but at the same time, um kind of distinct in terms of the fact that they were kind of two different procedural things. Um, and obviously, Joe Biden can't unilater- unilaterally, you know, create a 628-page executive order that could do all of this, again, because of, frankly, optics um, and the fact that even though it is going to pass, um, it's important that the people's representatives are the ones doing it as opposed to, you know, the executive. But whatever, regardless. So the Senate isn't able to fulfill their promise to um, support the American people. Um, And that's just frustrating and that's annoying. And this is, I'm I'm kind of venturing off from my main point, which is about Joe Biden. Um, But, you know, he can't, he can't do this package unilaterally. But if the Senate isn't going to do their job, how are we going to make the government work again, right? If the executive can't be the executive because of how bad it'll look from the outside, but the Senate and the House of Representatives isn't going to do their job because, you know, half of the people in both bodies don't have a backbone and aren't able to actually create institutionalized change, you know, how how are we going to govern? How are we going to help people? What are we going to do? And I think that's, this is an open question that I'm not attempting to answer on this episode, um, but I do think that it's going to be a real reckoning in terms of what can we do to make our government work for us? How can we make the government effective again? Um, and it's, it, was it ever effective? Um, is this like partisan turmoil going to stop Congress and stop the executive branch from ever being able to produce legislation again? Like real substantive meaningful legislation, not a, you know, a resolution to recognize a new holiday, you know? Um, so I just, I, I think that there will be a lot of studying to be done in the next couple of years, kind of watching the dynamics in Congress continue to shift and change. Um, and again, not a question that I'm trying to answer right now because I can't, I can't do that. Um, but I just, I think that it's an important thing that we all pay attention to. So, Putting all of that aside, what else is Joe Biden under fire for? So the this is a very important issue. Um, and again, kind of revealing the divide between, you know, the extreme left wing of the party, the center of the party, um, is the fact that um, Joe Biden, 
that or the Washington Post recently released an article um, that the first child migrant center basically has opened under Joe Biden. Um, and what that means basically is kids in cages, uh, which was a significant point of contention during the election um, and was one of the biggest reasons why there was so much vitriol and so much energy around removing Donald Trump from office. And I think that there is a little bit more nuance in terms of um, what what is actually going on in these migrant centers um, and, you know, what we did see in Donald Trump's presidency was the, you know, forced sterilization and just complete, like, uh, just horrible, horrible policies um, happening in those centers, um, whereas we don't know if those same policies are continuing under Joe Biden. Um, and the number one thing I have to say here um, is that there is no excuse for these facilities in the first place. None. You know, give these kids back to their parents, let the parents into the country, you know, give them a pathway to citizenship, all of that. Um, but at the same time, I think that, uh, again, there's a lot of nuance in this issue. That being said, we do need to hold him accountable. You know, as I said, there's no excuse for these kinds of facilities to exist. Um, the children in these centers need to, again, be given back to their parents um, and they need to be brought back together. And if their parents are inaccessible, they need to be put in a place where they're in a home um, and not, you know, somewhere that feels like, a you know, a warehouse. Um, and so I'm just going to put that out there that I think that there's a lot of unknown um, and there's definitely a difference between the policies that are being implemented between the Trump presidency and the Biden presidency. Um, but there needs to be accountability for those actions. Um, and I don't, I see uh, on one side, again, People saying that, you know, he it's that that's it. We're a month and a half into the presidency and he's already doing all of these things. And that means that he can't do anything good for the next four years. Um, and we might as well have just voted for Gary Johnson um, because Joe Biden is not going to do anything for us. And on the other end, we see people who are more central, not do giving any any accountability, any pressure on the Biden administration, despite the fact that they were so frustrated by these policies under Donald Trump. Um, and I think this goes back to something that, again, I've talked about throughout the past several episodes, um, which is that we're seeing a uh, some complacency among um, some activists now that we have a Democratic president, we have a Democratic House, we have a Democratic Senate. Um, when we know that just because people are Democrats doesn't mean they're always going to do the right thing. Um, and we need to continue to put pressure on them from the outside, again, from outside those institutions, uh, to make sure that policy continues and that policy is being implemented appropriately. I think that's a really important thing to mention. Um, there's also the fact that um, this is, again, an issue that I think, you know, everyone on Twitter thinks that they're a foreign policy expert, um, especially at GW. Everyone on Twitter thinks that they're a foreign policy expert. They're not. These issues have many intricate layers. But at the same time, I do find myself uh, also being frustrated with some of these policy implementations um, in the fact that oh, in the last week or so, there was also a uh, bombing in Syria. So the United States committed an air raid uh, against Syria. And 
you know, there were no casualties. It was a, you know, a terrorist hotspot that they targeted. Um, But at the same time, we see this debate between, you know, American interventionism in the Middle East and between kind of taking care of citizens at home. Um, And that's kind of an interesting issue as it kind of transcends um, political parties a little bit, um, because a lot of conservatives believe that we should not be paying attention to people um, outside of the country, and we should only be paying attention to people in the United States. And a lot of liberals feel the same way in that, yes, we need to be supporting people in humanitarian efforts around the world, but we also need to be focused more on domestic policies um, and less on bombing foreign countries. Um, And I tend to feel the same way with that, um, in that I just don't think that American interventionism is effective. Um, I think that, you know, our relationship with the Middle East is extremely broken. And I'm not claiming that I am a foreign policy expert. I am not at all. This is kind of just based on my feelings and based on what little I know about our relationship with the Middle East. Um, And it isn't good. We aren't effective at our goals in that region. um, And we need to be spending less time there rather than more time there. Um, And so I just think that we need to like kind of come to terms with what our role is in the international community in terms of terrorism and in terms of, you know, increasing stability within the Middle East. Um, So that's just something I'm going to touch on, um, especially because this happened all while we were debating the stimulus package. um, And so people thought, oh, wow, he's bombing foreign countries and I just want my, you know, I want my $2,000, which is a, a valid opinion to have, except for the fact that, you know, domestic and foreign policy issues are happening at the same time, you know, and again, if Joe Biden governs unilaterally and, you know, releases the stimulus package without the support of Congress, I think that there would just be a lot of issues there. Um, So do I have a job rating for Joe Biden at this point? No, I think that there's still um, a lot to be seen, a lot to be heard, a lot to be found out about Joe Biden and whether or not his policies truly have the have Americans best interests in mind. Um, so I'm holding off on judgment as much as I can. Um, I'm also holding off on judgment on, you know, members of the Senate um, until they do something like Ron Johnson um, to make me believe that they don't have Americans best interests in mind. Um, and that being said, my my slate for all of the new members of Congress are pretty much clean. I am not going to judge you whether you're a Democrat or Republican because I know that Democrats don't always have our best interests in mind. And with that being said, uh, we are going to move on to the second topic of today, which is Andrew Cuomo resign challenge. Um, And here's a great example of a person with a D next to their name being a just a bad, a bad, bad person. So there has been a lot of allegations that have come out about Cuomo um, over the past couple of weeks, uh, both in terms of COVID and in terms of some sexual assault allegations. Um, So number one, there's been numerous complaints that Cuomo basically basically put COVID-19 patients into nursing homes, which caused the rate of you know, basically seniors dying of COVID, just it's like went through the roof um, because of this like mishandling of the pandemic in the beginning. And I think I touched on this in a previous show. Um, So that's obviously a huge allegation and a really big deal. Um, 
but the other really, really important thing that's come out over the past um, couple of weeks is that there have been a couple sexual assault allegations um, and kind of, you know, kind of using, using him, allegations of Cuomo using his authority and his power to kind of manipulate girls um, and kind of generally younger people than him. Um, And that's really bad. Um, Any kind of sexual assault allegations obviously need to be taken seriously. Um, And once again, we see a divide between, you know, really liberal people uh, or leftist people and people who are kind of more central to the party. Um, And, you know, the whole Me Too movement that happened a couple years ago, um, a lot of the, and it's, you know, continuing to happen now, but a lot of the um, people that were accused tended to be more right-wing, which I think made it a lot more palatable for uh, the Me Too movement to, you know, quote-unquote, cancel them. Which I don't you know, like to use that term because of various reasons and, like, the current implication of it, but um, that there is, again, it was, like, a lot more palatable to say, oh, you're a Republican, that means you definitely did it. Etc. Um, whereas now we see a Democrat, a really, uh, you know, a Democrat who we, you know, everyone thought might have presidential aspirations in 2024, um, just not, you know, people not believing his um, survivors. Um, and this Me Too movement, the people who are at the core of that movement, not saying anything about it. Um, and I think that it just goes to show how much we need to look beyond party affiliation when determining whether or not politicians are good people, right? Because just because someone has a D next to their name doesn't make them a good person automatically, right? We need to look beyond party affiliation a little bit to make sure that we actually have a full understanding of the way the world works, the way that politics works. Um, and that said, that, 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 being said for people who are more moderately liberal, and that's also being said for leftists. There are plenty of extremely liberal people, extremely on the far side of the left wing, who are, you know, are really, they have a lot of internalized misogyny, a lot of internalized racism. Um, And I think that, you know, we need to, just because someone is a self-identified socialist, doesn't mean that they're necessarily a good person or necessarily like truly believe in equality. And so we need to look at the world beyond party affiliation or beyond political affiliation. Um, You need to actually look at someone's actions, someone's words uh, to determine whether or not they're a good person and whether, you know, you deserve their trust. And this is why we do not idolize politicians, right? The the way our government currently works is it, it promotes people who maybe do not have the people's best interests at heart. And when we do get a politician that's more genuine, um, it's easy for those that, that genuine nature of those politicians to, down the line, get corrupted. Um, and, it, you know, so our government system kind of tends to promote people who are more thirsty for power um, rather than actually helping people um, and people who kind of use that power for their own advantage rather than using their authority to, once again, help people. Um, and there are plenty of exceptions to this. There are plenty of politicians who are who are in government who do genuinely care about the people. Um, but again, it's important to take every politician and what they say with a grain of salt. Um, and that's an institutional thing that I really do think we need to change. And as I've said before, I think it just is a matter of changing the way we campaign in this country and how long those campaigns run. Um, but again, that's a issue for another episode. Um, 
And I think an important convert, another important politician to mention with this is AOC, right? So she's obviously a a very genuine politician, someone that a lot of people look up to, um, but she does get criticism um, across the board. And despite the fact that she is, you know, leftist um, and people really do look up to her, she's not perfect. She has made wrong decisions in the past and she said things that like aren't great. So if we just look at her and we say she's the greatest politician ever, and we don't look at, into anything else that she does or says, we're really losing, you know, our, our, our purpose in government. The people's purpose in government is to provide accountability, right? It's to say, you're not doing your job appropriately. I'm going to vote you out. I am going to replace you with somebody who will listen to me and who will do their job. Um, and if we don't do that, if we say, oh, well, you're a Democrat, so it's okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to continue to support you. We're, we're, not, we're not doing our jobs and we are not doing our civic engagement the way we're supposed to be doing, right? So our, we're, we have to look beyond the vote. We have to look beyond the party affiliation. We have to vote for who is truly going to represent us um, and represent our wishes. So with all that being said, Cuomo needs to resign. He needs to get out. He needs to stop releasing statements. Um, he, it's just, there's... It's very frustrating that he's continued to um, stay in this position of power after all of the various allegations that have come out against him. And obviously, it's pretty hard to force a governor out of their seat. Um, But I'm just hoping that he, you know, he himself takes some accountability for his actions and he moves on. Um, That's 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 what I'll say on that. Um, Cuomo needs to go away. That's it. There's no, like, articulate way to wrap this up other than saying that, um, you know, he needs to go away. And I hope that this, the, these kinds of segments where I talk about Democrats who I don't like um, is enough of, uh, you know, it legitimizes me a little bit. Like, I am liberal. I am a very liberal woman. Um, but at the same time, I can recognize the fact that the Democratic Party is, like, not the greatest institution in the world. It has a lot of potential. Um, but I don't think that it's living up to all of its promises. Um, so again, I hope that, you know, for any conservative listeners um, out there, you kind of believe me when I say that I am trying to look at everything with like an equal lens. Um, and I'm just really looking for the best interests of the people, um, in essence. So that's Cuomo. Uh, and now we're going to talk about COVID. Um, so we've got some good things. We've got some bad things. So let's start with the good things. Um, Number one, it looks like we are all going to be, or all adults are going to be vaccinated by May, or we're going to have um, at least vaccines available for everyone by May, which is right in time for me to have a really, really fun and safe summer. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting out um, of my apartment a little bit and uh, finally going inside buildings and seeing people. Um, So... That's exciting, um, and hopefully all of that works out and vaccine rollout continues to kind of move as it's moving, um, and we are all able to get vaccinated by the by May, like Joe Biden just announced recently. Um, and a big part of this um, and the fact that um, vaccine distribution has moved so quickly um, is because Johnson & Johnson uh, just got approved for their single-shot uh, vaccine, so... 
the other vaccines that have come out are in two doses. Um, so you get one shot, then you have to go back in two weeks and get another shot, um, and it just is a little bit more complicated. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a little bit less effective than the other ones, but it's one shot. So you go, you get your one shot, and you're done. That's it. Um, and so that's really important that that's come out because it means that we have now three different companies producing this vaccine, and that means that so many more people are going to be able to be vaccinated. Um, and the one-shot vaccine means that, you know, they'll have to hold on to a lot less uh, material. The hospitals and the pharmacies that are distributing the vaccine are going to have to hold on to a lot less material and then obviously be able to distribute it faster. Um, there's no concern of people, you know, forgetting to come back for their second appointment. Um, and so it all will hopefully speed up the vaccination process, um, which is really great. And the other great thing uh, with Johnson & Johnson um, is that they are partnering with Merck to produce even more of the vaccine. So this is kind of an interesting development with the vaccine um, because it means that two people, two organizations at least, that are generally not friends with each other and don't want to collaborate because they're, you know, directly working in the same economic niche, um, are actually working together to produce more of the vaccine, which again means that vaccine rollout will be moving faster and in turn more people will get shots in their arms um, and we will be able to have a fun summer and go back to normal finally. Um, the other important news uh, in terms of COVID is that Greg Abbott in Texas, uh, who is the governor of Texas, is not very good at his job. And he just in the past week um, got rid of the mask mandate in Texas and reopened everything to 100% capacity with no restrictions at all. So, uh, don't know what's going on there. Uh, I mean, I guess it's just, right, we're at, we're almost at one year of the pandemic. Um, and actually, the next episode, next Saturday, um, the 13th, for me at least, and I think for a lot of people, uh, that's what I consider to be like the start date, um, of lockdown. Um, and so I'm gonna get into kind of where we've been and where we're going a lot more next week. Um, but... So we're at this one-year anniversary, you know, COVID cases appear to be going down because of vaccinations, but at the same time, there's, you know, a threat of another wave on the horizon. Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty around COVID. And for most states, at least, that means lay low, keep the restrictions that you have, monitor everything closely. And I guess for Texas, that meant, oh, well, COVID cases went down for a week. That means we're we're ready to go. We're back in business. Um, and I just can't see how that's a good idea. Um, and I feel very, very bad for Texans um, and the fact that their government really doesn't appear to care about them at all. Um, and again, I have, I have friends who live in Texas um, and I'm, I'm just hoping that they are triple masking and limiting, you know, how, how much they go out as much as possible because I am very frustrated by how the Texas government is operating. Of course, I am, you know, a, a Northeast person. I kind of have obviously no say in how Texas governs themselves, and I never will. Um, but I do think that it's important to see that that's happening and also 
hopefully make sure that other states don't follow in that same mentality. Um, and we hopefully move on um, to cases going down, vaccinations going up, and we're out of this. And we don't have to be doing this for another full year. Um, so the other thing that I wanted to talk about was the fact that um, CPAC happened um, this past weekend, um, or the weekend before. And the CPAC, if you don't know, uh, stands for the Conservative Political Action Conference. Um, and it is basically a place for all of the big shot Republicans um, to get in a room and talk to each other about Republican, Republicanism, conservatism. Um, and it was interesting this year, Donald Trump made an appearance, which was pretty big, because I pretty, I'm 90% sure that this was his first, like, official public appearance um, since leaving office. And, you know, a, again, a lot of the Republican bigwigs were there. Um, all of the big Republican senators, just like one Ted Cruz, um, who, you know, got back from Cancun, loaded a a case of water into one person's trunk and then immediately got on the next flight to Orlando to go to CPAC um, and continue to spread lies about the election there. I don't, I would really like to have a talking to with um, whoever Ted Cruz's um, manager is, um, like whoever his chief of staff is or his campaign manager or whoever, whoever is saying, oh yeah, I know that you were just in like so much hot water for um, going to Cancun while your entire state was, you know, frozen over. But I think it's perfectly fine if you go to CPAC right now and you just don't spend any time in your state during a national crisis. Um, and it's also important to note that, um, Joe Biden went with a group of Texas politicians to Texas to, you know, survey damage and, and help people. Um, and Ted Cruz was not in that group. He was at CPAC, um, you know, speaking to the Republican base. And I just, I think that Texas is too diverse of a state and it's too um, complicated of a state at this point to you know, for the, the concept of, oh, well, it's a red state. So, we, you know, he doesn't have to worry about campaigning or like he has to focus only on his base. Like that's just not the way that Texas is working anymore. We see it going more and more blue. He needs to start reaching out of his base um, and he needs to not just be talking to the CPAC crowd. He needs to be doing real work for, you know, real people in Texas. Um, and so, again, another politician up for reelection in 2022 um, and I have no patience for Ted Cruz. Not at all. Um, yeah, so the other, you know, important things that happened at CPAC, one was that, again, Trump spoke. Um, I didn't listen to his speech because I have no interest in listening to his voice again. Um, but he did say, you know, he didn't rule out running again, which I guess is important. I really don't think he will, but I guess it's always a looming threat. Um, but the other thing he said was that he does not think that the Republican Party should split, you know, so there's been a lot of threats of like creating the Patriot Party um, and using that as a way to bring Donald Trump back into the conversation and get rid of the quote unquote rhinos from the from the Republican Party, um, as in you know, any Republican with a backbone and a conscience is, is a fake Republican, obviously, which is obviously is being sarcastic there. But anyway, um, but he did say, no, we're, you know, we can't divide the Republican Party, um, which like strategically is, you know, the right choice, because despite the fact that I don't 
like Republicans and I don't think that their policies are best for America, um, you know, strategically, if you divide the Republican Party into two, uh, you know, Democrats will win every single election. And I think that um, Donald Trump has a big ego, but I think that he's smart enough to know that if he promotes that idea, um, then people will follow through with it. And it'll mean the end of the Republican Party and any kind of conservative control as we know it. Um, so these are all just important things to talk about and address. Um, again, Donald Trump's influence over the, um, Republican Party and over American politics has not decreased at all. It is exactly where it was. Um, and we will continue to see it and see his name and see his face and see how he impacts American politics for years to come. And honestly, this is something that happened today. Um, you know, the QAnon conspiracy theory had claimed that Donald Trump was going to be inaugurated today, March 4th, um, to his second term as president. I don't really know how all of it works. I have not done that much research on the whole QAnon conspiracy theory. Um, but there was a threat that there was going to be another, you know, riot or another, you know, act of violence like what happened on January 6th. And, um, you know, that's scary because I'm in D.C. now and it's scary that, again, a former president has such a strong control over uh, such a large span of people that there was concern that there was going to be some kind of violence um, or some kind of issue in D.C. Um, today because of this conspiracy theory that he helped to create and perpetuate and support and the Republican Party continues to perpetuate and support. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how all of that goes. Um, like a lot of these issues, it's not an open and shut question. It's not a, you know, an easy thing to determine. You know, politics is always changing. Um, everything is const everything is constantly changing, and especially now during COVID, um, we never know what's on the horizon. So we'll just kind of have to wait and see. Um, and just generally make sure that we are continuing to hold all of our elected officials accountable. So, with that. That is the serious part of the show, out of the way. And now, I'm going to talk about something that's not political at all. Because um, I can't really come up with a great, insane story for the week, just because I think everything was insane. Um, so instead, I'm going to talk about GW basketball for a couple minutes. So, <sighs> trauma, sadness, basically. March sadness is what we're in now. Just before I recorded the show... Um, GW Basketball lost the second round A-10 tournament game, which means that they're out, which means that the season is over, um, which is just very upsetting because they, you know, had like kind of a slow start to the season. And then they had a full month where they couldn't play, couldn't practice because of COVID, finally came back, were able to play a couple regular games and then right into the tournament. Um, and uh, I just, so full disclosure, I grew up a Villanova basketball fan. Um, my entire family went to Villanova. Um, I watched Villanova basketball for like as long as I can remember. And if you know anything about college basketball, Villanova is really, really good. And they win a lot. Um, and coming to GW, where like it's not as well known for its basketball program, it's like a very distinct change. Um, and I, again, I know this isn't political at all, but I just need to get it off my chest um, because... To be perfectly honest, there is nothing more heartbreaking than watching a team be up 10 points, 
like 15 points in the first half and then come back for the first 10 minutes of the second half and just losing every single one of the points of their lead. Like, it's just... Anyway, I know that this is this is a very different market from my usual content, so I know that people are probably tuning out right now, but... um. You know, it's it was a tough season, and it was a weird season because of COVID and everything else. Um, and, you know, hopefully when they come back next fall, they're a lot stronger, and it's a lot more normal of a season, so they can continue to progress as opposed to just, like, taking a huge long break. Um, but I just, I, I, I feel strongly about this team, and I think that they have a lot of potential. And uh, I think that they just need to, this is the main thing, first of all, the main the main thing here is that I am not a basketball guru. That's like the wrong word, but I don't know that much about basketball. It's just the one sport that I kind of understand and actually enjoy watching. The main thing, their main issue, is that they don't play the full 40 minutes, right? They spend the first half doing, you know, being really strong, doing good work. At halftime, they're up 15 points. They come back. The second half, the first 10 minutes of the second half, they're like not even playing basketball. They're just like walking back and forth across the court, right? If you want to win a game, if you want to keep a lead, you have to kind of keep up that stamina for the entire 40 minutes. Um, So I think that that's one thing that they need to work on. They also need to work on um, not just taking the three-point shot because it's available to them, like actually, you know, playing basketball and like working your way to the hoop, my dad is listening to this and he's having an interesting experience. Um, so I just, you know, I think I, that, again, not political, but something I wanted to talk about, something I wanted to express, something that's been on my mind this week. Um, GW basketball, it's an unfortunate season. It's over now, but hopefully Villanova makes its way into the tournament and uh, hopefully there even is a tournament um, and... COVID doesn't stop it altogether. So that is my really random out of place rant um, for the end of this episode. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening again. Great to be back this week. Um, And I'll be, you know, I'll be back next week. um, And I am really looking forward to talking to you all again. So with that being said, uh, I'm Emily Lamb. Have a great week and I will talk to you later. Bye.